Hello, and welcome back to our final discussion of Ray Bradbury's Let's All Kill Constance. Uh, I should start by saying that if you've been on the channel much at all, uh, you've probably picked up on the fact that when, it tend, when I get to the end of a lecture series, I tend to get a little less structured um, in the way that I'm talking about whatever it is I'm talking about. And I feel especially inclined to do this in the case of Let's All Kill Constance, um, in part because after the last couple of uh, discussions of Bradbury, I, I felt kind of like I was being a little unnecessarily hard on him. Um, on the one hand, I do think that we have a really important question here, and I do think that Bradbury has, in large part, become much more commercialized, um, has in fact kind of sold out to the Hollywood machine and, and sort of, has, has very much changed his identity as a writer as a consequence of his success, um, which at this point, again, has been for like 40, 50 years. The guy has earned his success. Um, and I've actually been thinking about this a lot over the last week, um, trying to sort of sort out both what I think about Bradbury, the writer overall, and what specifically is going on in Let's All Kill Constance, as well as sort of what it means to me to be having this conversation about Bradbury, you know, this writer that I consider really important and really influential and, you know, very much foundational to understanding who I am and what I believe about writing and literature and all that stuff. Um, and the fact is, I didn't care for Let's All Kill Constance all that much. Like, I did read it, and I got to the end, and I do think the end is actually pretty solid. Um, I honestly think that the book is pretty much garbage until the last third of the book, at which point it does in fact improve, and it has Bradbury's usual pacing, and seems a lot more cogent than the earlier stuff we talked about, and some themes really do emerge, and... You know, we do in fact get a pretty good idea of who this person Constance is and why she's doing what she's doing and why she is, if, you know, responsibility is kind of the word that we're using here, although that's not really the way it's presented, why she is responsible for what she has done. Um, I think that this story does, at the end of the day, kind of redeem itself, but... I got rid of my copy of the book many moons ago, and I am now seeing why. Because as much as this was some fun, and there were some interesting passages and some interesting images in typical Bradbury fashion, it's definitely not my favorite one of his works. But I want to sort of pedal or backpedal here a little bit, because last week I was very much talking about this as this representative work of Bradbury's late career, and the fact of the matter is, this is the only book that I've really read of Bradbury's later career, and it's unfair for me to generalize. Um, the fact of the matter is, I'm upset with Let's All Kill Constance, not because Bradbury is betraying himself or because he's become commercialized or a sellout or whatever. If anything, I'm just upset with it because it's not very good. Um, and this is honestly something I kind of want to discuss in its own right. Like, this is something worth examining and, and talking about. Um, because there's a whole lot of conversation that can be had about the whole commercialism versus art, you know, dichotomy in, in contemporary media and art and literature and so on. Um, it's something that we've bumped into a lot in the course of this lecture, although or in the course of this lecture series, um, although it's not something that I've really gotten a chance to talk about at any great length. Um, the fact of the matter is, Bradbury is famous for writing some truly profound, truly powerful works of art. Um, the Martian Chronicles, many of the stories in The Illustrated Man, and Fahrenheit 451 especially. Um, and reading Fahrenheit 451, it was kind of easy to pick up on the comments that Faber makes about the nature of art and the nature of substance as being a sort of philosophical axiom, a, a words to live by for Bradbury in his own career. That was his mission statement, or so it seemed. But the fact of the matter is, that's not usually how Bradbury does things. You know, as much as I have been spending a lot of this lecture series tracking the same themes that Bradbury encounters over and over again, and there are some themes that we've encountered over and over again. This idea of confronting one's own mortality rather than running away from it has been pretty constant throughout all of the novels that we've read. Um, 
the idea that, you know, there, there is some sort of superficiality and that one can sort of choose between being a good, upright, and therefore uninteresting person or a terrible and therefore fascinating one um, has also recurred on multiple occasions. And in Let's All Kill Constance, we sort of see a kind of apotheosizing of that idea um, in Constance's determination to destroy her former career in order to take on the role of St. Joan. Um, these are pretty consistent ideas in Bradbury, but honestly, his thoughts about literature aren't that consistent from what I can tell. Like, Bradbury does have a book on writing, which I admittedly have not read, and Bradbury has made a lot of comments about art through over the course of his novels, um, but as much as Fahrenheit 451 seems like the obvious place to look for Bradbury's philosophy of art and literature, Faber's comments there about life being, or art being about the infinite profusion of life and, you know, beity criticizing the society that we likely come from by arguing that, you know, we have turned literature and magazines into vanilla tapioca, um, as much as that is a preoccupation in a lot of Bradbury's work, I think I was kind of misreading him, like emphasizing those passages more than Bradbury himself would. And that's why I came to the conclusion that to some degree, Bradbury was being a hypocrite. Like, here we are, you know, in Something Wicked This Way Comes First, and then here in Let's All Kill Constance, we have a book that I'm literally asking the question, why does this exist? Um, and not coming to much of a conclusion basically leading me to believe that Bradbury had kind of sold out his old opinions, had sold out his own ideas, and had ultimately decided to become exactly the sort of cheap, thrilling, but not substantial artist that he depicted in Fahrenheit 451. You know, all those television programs that were just vapid and empty and meant to sort of attract attention without actually teaching or, or offering anything of value. But that's probably not what Bradbury sees himself doing. And that's what I want to emphasize. I read Fahrenheit 451 wrong, I think, um, at least in the context of Bradbury's greater work. Now that we've, you know, been through five of his books and have seen the things that he really does care about manifest multiple times, it's pretty clear that this idea of substance in art has more to do with the rough edges of literature than it does necessarily with the deep themes. Remember, back when we were talking about Fahrenheit 451, we read that passage where Faber describes his sort of thesis on art. I emphasized then that it was really vague, that it was ambiguous. What could Bradbury mean by the infinite profusion of life? Or, you know, good writers run a hand over life often. Um, because it isn't, it isn't clear. Like, you, as a philosopher, my next natural question is, okay, so what is life then? How can you identify life? What, what would that apply to, um, and what would that specifically not apply to? And what with the ambiguity and the abstraction of that statement being like all we had to go on, naturally I applied my own standards there. Um, I was looking for substance, thematic insight, perhaps psychological insight, and then when we came to Let's All Kill Constance, found that wanting and accused Bradbury of hypocrisy. But I think what Bradbury is interested in has way less to do with those typically literary like aspirations and conventions, and much more with life as a sort of wildness and creativity. Because that's the consistency. That's the thing that we've seen in Bradbury over and over and over again. And in Let's All Kill Constance, it remains there. Say what you want about Let's All Kill Constance, you know, failing to live up to the standards of the genre of noir. Say what you want about it failing to live up to basic, like, writing standards or plotting standards. And, I mean, I don't... I don't regret the comments that I made last time pointing out how, you know, totally incoherent some of the conversations and some of the action actually is. Like, I stand by that. But what I like about Constance remains the same, namely the scenes, the images, the, the particular glimpses of the world that Bradbury creates here in his sort of fictionalized 1960s Hollywood. As much as I criticize that for being unrealistic, it doesn't have to be realistic. That's kind of the whole point. 
like Bradbury more than anything has very much shown us again and again and again that he is more interested in an interesting idea than he is ever interested in, in the consistency or the development or the realism underlying that idea. I mean, so many of his stories are incoherent. Like, The Martian Chronicles itself is a slapdash collection of a bunch of short stories into an inconsistent and logically incoherent narrative, but that offers something approaching thematic consistency in the way that he talks about Mars. And that's Bradbury. That's who he is. On some level, he is the most ADHD writer in the history of science fiction writing. He can't sustain a story for very long without it becoming boring to him. And so it's not the story that he's interested in, it's the components, the images, the ideas. And I can totally respect that. Now, admittedly, his ideas aren't terribly sophisticated or even that deep or philosophical, and there's criticism to be had there as well. Many times now we've talked about how Bradbury leans on stereotypes, how he, you know, likes to think of black culture in very simplistic ways, like we saw in Way in the Middle of the Air or The Other Foot. Um, here we see it again in the person of Blind Henry, who just mysteriously shows up in the middle of this novel, becomes a main character, and then apparently hangs out for the rest of the time. Um, Bradbury is pretty comfortable using these sorts of pejorative tropes and stereotypes because he's not interested in the depth of these ideas, he's interested in just the surface quality. He likes the way it looks, likes the way they sound, likes the imagery that comes associated with them. As much as we are right to criticize Bradbury for leaning on tropes like the watermelons and way in the middle of the air as a stand-in for black culture, that's what black culture is to Bradbury. And that shows how superficial his understanding of these things actually are. But that's, again, Bradbury. Like, the best and the worst qualities about Bradbury come down to the fact that he has a superficial understanding of a great wide variety of experiences and worlds. He is not a deep thinker, but he is an incredibly broad thinker. And that's why we see him doing things that other writers frequently don't dare to do. That's why we see him jumping genres as frequently as he does, comfortably moving from science fiction to, you know, quasi-horror to noir. And as much as I can absolutely criticize him about not getting the conventions or not understanding the way that those genres work, it kind of doesn't matter to him. Because at the end of the day, Bradbury's voice remains consistent. The genres are just the trappings, things that he is excited about and interested in and wants to talk about and wants to share with us. He doesn't necessarily seek deeper understanding of these things, but he does want to try and he wants to experiment and he wants to play. Like, that's what Bradbury does. He plays in his stories. He is not serious. He is never serious. We should have seen that coming way back in Something Wicked This Way Comes, when smiles and laughter and, you know, not taking things seriously is the solution to all of the evils in the world. That's Bradbury's outlook. Like, why get bogged down in the details and the nitty-gritty and the scholarship of these things when instead we can just write a completely different story about a completely different idea and have a completely different conversation? Like, Bradbury doesn't want us to seriously examine whether or not he gets the tropes right in his, you know, quasi-noir uh, novel about Let's All Kill Constance. What he wants to tell us is, hey, Raymond Chandler is really cool, and noir detective stories are really cool, and I'm going to tell a noir detective story without changing my voice, without changing the kind of characters I like to write about, without getting too deep into the plot or any of that stuff, because I want to tell a story, not that is a noir detective story, but a story that has a noir detective coat of paint on it. And, again, that's both his great strength and his great weakness. He is incredibly frustrating as a writer because you do want more than just a superficial understanding of these things, but it's so hard to fault him, especially because he's always moving on. He's always changing genres. He's always experimenting with new media. He is not, you know, 
Tolstoy, perfecting his craft and making the novel very much his own. He's Leonardo da Vinci, who is always painting on a new kind of canvas, always using some new technique for sculpture, always playing with new ways of doing brush strokes. No two paintings are the same because he's always bored with the one that he just did by the time that he's done with it. And that's why Bradbury is such a great short story writer, why we can see that infinite profusion of life that Faber talks about in his short stories best of all, but he really runs dry in a lot of his longer works, and especially his late longer works, where he really doesn't have the time for this crap. I imagine if we had taken a different tactic, if we had read one of his contemporary short story collections, I would have liked it much better, and I would have had a much more positive reaction to it. Um, if anything, I'm not doing justice to him because the format of this lecture series has been long-form lectures about long-form works of art. Um, if, in fact, I did a bunch of ten-minute lectures on little short stories of his, chances are I would be doing a lot more justice to Bradbury and having a lot more fun while I was at it. So, on the one hand, yeah, I do think the criticisms that I've leveled at Bradbury are pretty valid, with the exception of that hypocritical one, because, again, I think I just didn't understand what Bradbury himself valued about life, about, you know, the, the creativity that he had at his disposal. Um, I do think that he's kind of bad at doing plotting and pretty bad at replicating certain genre conventions. I think he doesn't understand noir and he doesn't understand horror. But where I was totally willing to forgive him for doing that in Something Wicked This Way Comes, I think I'm less apt to forgive him here in Let's All Kill Constance. Um, maybe because I'm too close to noir in a way that I'm not close to horror. Um, but the other side of that, the commercialism, I also want to talk about. Because, again, one can read Fahrenheit 451 as a condemnation of commercial art, commercial literature. It's there. It's in the text. Beatty is clearly talking about it when he says that magazines are turning into vanilla tapioca. Bradbury's clearly talking about it when he's criticizing the superficiality of television. All of that is there. But, again, what we refer to as commercialism here isn't necessarily what Bradbury is talking about. Like, when we talk about commercialism here in the year of our Lord, 2022, we're usually talking about Marvel movies or intellectual property being misused by, you know, various big-wig commercial interests. We're talking about how, you know, crappy ideas like the Emoji movie can be made, or how Chris Pratt gets cast as Mario in the new Mario movie that's supposed to come out soon. Like, that's what we imagine the issue with commercial art to be. You have these big corporations who know that they can make money just by producing a movie or a book or a TV show with a certain intellectual property, and therefore don't do justice to that work. Um... Because generally, we're willing to accept a lot of, you know, commercialized art. We are all excited when the Lego movie came out and was actually good. We don't have a problem with new Spider-Man movies that come out and rewrite the old formula, especially when they're as good as the ones that, you know, Phil Lord and Chris Miller make. Um, in general, our trouble with commercialized art starts and stops with bad commercialized art. Um... But what I want to stress is that what Bradbury has shown us through his work is that the commercialism he sees back in the 1950s is a different kind of commercialism than the one that we're preoccupied with today. Remember, as much as Bradbury is very, very upset about censorship, and as much as he is very concerned about the ability to just go walking in the park in the middle of the night and not get stopped by cops... These are problems typical of the 1950s that kind of ended with the 1950s. Um, as much as Bradbury is very protective of, you know, the works of Edgar Allan Poe and Usher II or The Exiles, as much as he is defensive of The Wizard of Oz and fantasy and horror and all of these genres that he loved to read, that's not the same thing as a distinction between commercialized literature and non-commercialized literature. We're not dealing with a high art versus low art distinction. We're dealing with a, we, there should be room for much experimentation and a wide variety of genres to play around in. That's what Bradbury clearly wants. 
Like, if we take Fahrenheit 451 as the only book about censorship that Bradbury has to offer, then yeah, that's an understandable confusion. The high art, low art distinction might very well be warranted as, you know, the, the separation between what Mildred is watching on television and what Beatty is talking about that's gone the way of the, the um, dodo. Um, but again, based on the other stuff that we've read of Bradbury, where he gets worked up about... Um, where he gets worked out up about censorship, it usually goes hand in hand with genre. You know, he is always talking about Poe as the object of censorship, or the the creepy plays of William Shakespeare. Bradbury is incredibly defensive of weird crap. Like, that's what it really comes down to. I don't think he's interested in the conversation about high art and low art. Bradbury himself frequently falls into the low art category, and with Let's All Kill Constance, I found myself especially inclined to call it low art. But that's because he's not invested in that high art distinction. He loves Moby Dick, but he doesn't necessarily love it because of some high artistic aspirations or some deep allegorical meaning. Again, you watch Moby Dick the movie, and it's just a story about a guy who's obsessively trying to kill a whale. That's what this story means to Bradbury. Um, and that doesn't mean that he's got it wrong. There's something inherently exciting and interesting about this, you know, ship full of obsessed men trying to take down this impossibly powerful whale. Um, likewise, that's why he's interested in Frankenstein. That's why he's interested in The Wizard of Oz. And that's why he's interested in the works of Edgar Allan Poe. It's the images. It's the ideas. Not necessarily deep ideas, not necessarily deep psychological reflections of people. Like, arguably, Bradbury doesn't understand what Poe is doing in those situations. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, maybe he doesn't, doesn't care. Like, that's not what he's trying to replicate. What he's trying to replicate are those big, iconic images. Ahab chasing after the whale. Um, the telltale heart beating under the floorboards. The magical wizard who hangs out behind a curtain in The Wizard of Oz. These are the images that stick with Bradbury, and he is so good at making those images, those ideas that just stick in the mind long after the story is over. Um, as much as, yes, there are lots of scenes in Let's All Kill Constance and some of his other works as well that are virtually unintelligible, the big picture stuff, you know, the mosaic in the Martian building that gets vomited on by some unthinking uh, Earth space, space, uh, spaceman, um, the fireman who doesn't put out fires but instead sets them for the purposes of governmental censorship, um, the funhouse mirrors getting shattered by Charles Halloway laughing, and indeed the image of Mr. Constance sitting alone in his house full of newspapers, eventually getting crushed by his own newsprint and his own history. These are images that stick. They're ideas that Bradbury doesn't have to investigate very deeply in order for them to imprint themselves on our consciousness and for us to assign meaning to them that Bradbury himself may not be interested in assigning. Bradbury understands that these images themselves are powerful and strong, and he may not necessarily understand why, but he leaves that up to us. In the same way that an abstract painting full of dark blacks and blues and browns can feel ominous or foreboding to us, but just be a color experiment for the sake of the artist, Bradbury is great at coming up with these iconic images, the city that devours the people who visit it, or the rains perpetually pounding down on the heads of Venusian explorers. That stuff has lasted in my brain for decades. These images have stuck around long after I've stopped reading Bradbury's work, and I long to revisit them, to give them meaning, to assign symbolic significance to these things that are, at the end of the day, empty symbols in some respect. Bradbury isn't necessarily tapping into the deep thematic associations here, he, which may explain why so many of his themes are kind of simplistic. 
He talks about hubris a lot, probably because he spent a lot of time reading mythology. He talks about mortality a lot, probably also because he spent a lot of time hanging out reading mythology. Like, these are big, larger-than-life ideas that have been with us since the dawn of time, and he doesn't necessarily have anything new to say about them. The same, you know, moral underlying the Martian Chronicles is the same moral that underlies most of the Greek heroic myths, or Gilgamesh for that matter. They're older than dirt. And even in Let's All Kill Constance, it's not like he's saying anything especially new about the way that Constance's life is governed, the whole business of innocence and guilt, sin and sinlessness. He's just parroting some of the most basic tenets of Christianity in a new light with a new coat of paint. And as much as this frustrates me, as much as I've spent the last two lectures getting progressively more and more grumpy with Bradbury for these decisions, that's my hang-up, I think. I don't think I'm right to necessarily accuse him of anything here. No, his work may not be terribly deep, but it doesn't have to be. It's okay doing what it's doing, and he is so good at the things that he does. That's what I admire. That's what I want to replicate. But at the same time, I want to do more with it. And you can. That's the thing. Um, so much of this, like, of the appeal of science fiction, especially, you know, when we get these very short, like short story snippets of these glimpses of worlds that we leave just as quickly as we encounter, you know, there's so much room for development in these cases. Um, one of the things that I want to do at some point as part of my lecture project, you know, some future year long after we were done with Bradbury, um, I've always wanted to talk about the film adaptations of P.K. Dick's short stories, because there's like a dozen of them. Hollywood, like, makes adaptations of P.K. Dick so regularly. Um, the, probably the most famous one is, is Blade Runner, but you've also got to talk about A Scanner Darkly, or Minority Report, or Total Recall, or Payback over in the Hong Kong cinema. Like, there's a ton of different adaptations of Philip K. Dick's work, but importantly, every single one of them radically realizes a world that Philip K. Dick only barely begins to show us. They are interested in things that Dick himself was not interested in. Like, Blade Runner is famous for its moody music and its ambiance in this city that is, like, probably one of the best realizations of a cyberpunk environment in cinema to date. And yet, if you read the original story, Do Androids Dream of, of Electric Sheep, none of that is in there. Like, for Philip K. Dick, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is set in a world that's kind of already dead. It's not big and sprawling and crowded and busy and lit up with crazy neon signs and covered in a hazy fog. No, it's frequently just barren. Um, like... There are all of these abandoned buildings lying around, and it seems like people inhabit whichever floors they want, because only like two or three people live in each building. The world has been depopulated, not overpopulated. But it's okay. Like, as much as, you know, I may be a stickler for the original story that Philip K. Dick tells, as much as I, you know, am very conscious of these differences, I love Blade Runner. Like, both are wonderful adaptations of this roughly same story. And that's the thing about Bradbury as well. He is so open to elaboration and adaptation. He is so good at giving you a framework that is compelling and, you know, symbolic and potentially full of meaning, waiting for someone to come out and put that meaning there, to give that meaning, to take those broad, abstract symbols and turn them into something meaningful, thematic, and, you know, specifically dedicated to one interpretation or another. You know, I talked for a while about how I loved that short story, The City, because the city is this, like, perfect embodiment of an urban, like, organism that just devours the people who come into it. But that's my interpretation. Like, for Bradbury, it's just a simple revenge story. Again, something that's been around since the dawn of humans telling stories. Um, but you could just as easily interpret it to mean something different. 
Maybe you could talk about the, or you could reframe the city as an immigrant story, or you could reframe it as an actual horror piece, where the city is in fact somehow sentient and trying to destroy humanity itself. There's a ton of different ways that you can approach it, and you can see echoes of that in something like Silent Hill, or in any number of works where there is some sort of malevolent place out to stop humans from like living in those places. That's the greatness of Bradbury. As much as I want to see him develop these ideas, grow into something bigger, you know, be able to talk about his work the same way that I talk about the Iliad or the Odyssey, Bulgakov or Dostoevsky, that's just not his deal. Um, on some level, reading Bradbury deeply will ultimately disappoint. Like, some of his early works, all of the substance is there, and I don't want to deny it. But a lot of his later work, he's just not interested in that. He's not interested in going back and teasing out those details, because it's so much more fun to just move on to a new project immediately afterward. Way back when I was, you know, hardcore into Faulkner, and one day I'm probably going to do a series on Faulkner as well, um, I remember reading one of his stories, like, because I was just buying them left and right at this point. I read a book called Sanctuary, which is essentially about this guy who, like, runs away from home and ends up in some brothel in the middle of Yachtapatafa County, like, I think it's in Jefferson, and, like, all of the, you know, ladies of the night are very friendly and kind, and... There's not a whole lot to this story. Like, if you've read Faulkner, you know he's one of the greatest American writers who of the 20th century. Like, As I Lay Dying, um, Sound in the Fury, Light in August, Absalom, Absalom, every last one of them, just a stone-cold classic, just wildly, like, inventive and revealing such talent and the power of his voice. It's just amazing. And then you read Sanctuary, and it is not that... And what I found so interesting is that apparently as part of the afterword to Sanctuary, which he published on some later release of the edition, he actually apologizes. He's like, I'm sorry, but I, I know that this book is not as profound or meaningful as any of those other books that I wrote once upon a time. You know, it's definitely not A Sound in the Fury or An As I Lay Dying. And he literally says at one point, I realized I could make money by selling a book. And there's an apologetic sense to that. Like, Faulkner feels guilty about, you know, prostituting his art in this way. And perhaps it's appropriate that it's a book about prostitution. Um, but at the same time, like, that's how writers have to survive. And Bradbury was really good at that. Like, as much as I may be criticizing him for being commercialized, being kind of superficial, at the same time, Bradbury is not what you would consider a typical commercial writer. Like, yes, he is more than happy to sell his talents in order to remake Moby Dick, but... I mean, who wouldn't? Like, that's an awesome project. That sounds like a lot of fun. You get to, like, write the words that Gregory Peck is going to be growling as he chases after the white whale? Like, sign me the heck up for that. Like, can you really say that you're doing a disservice to, you know, art and literature at large by adapting one of the greatest American stories in the history of American letters for the screen? That was what Bradbury did, and that's kind of cool. Like... Yes, at the end of his career, we're seeing him as this sort of fast-paced, rapid-fire writer who is just coming up with these images, these iconic pictures and scenes. But, you know, would we be, would we be criticizing him as harshly as we would for an actual person born into Hollywood and, you know, constantly living there? Like, I've been real nice to George Lucas over the years, despite the fact that a lot of people consider him, you know, guilty of, like, destroying Star Wars. And essentially, George Lucas and Bradbury are doing the same work here. They're both science, especially good at science fiction. They're both wildly imaginative, and they're both not terribly interested in the actual mechanics of storytelling, except insofar as it gives them an excuse to just let their imaginations run wild. So, to that... I don't see a problem here. Like, in the same way that George Lucas was the crazy, wild, indie sensibility in the 1970s before he became the blockbuster engine that drove Hollywood for 30 years to come, Bradbury's kind of doing the same thing. He's just this wildly inventive guy who just wants to write crazy stories about whatever crazy idea pops into his head. 
And because they are poorly thought out in some cases, yeah, we're going to get some racism, and we're going to get some sexism, and we're going to get some obvious cliches and tropes and stereotypes. But at the end of the day, that's a pretty small price to pay for the wild creativity that's on display here. And that just makes all the much more sense with what Bradbury has had to say about his understanding of, of censorship. His idea that, at the end of the day, all creativity is welcome. That there should be no censorship, not because, you know, art is important or great or literary or shows us something about life, but because creativity is just fun and exciting to watch happen. Why would you prevent anyone from just making stuff up? So, again... As much as, you know, last time I ended on the note of can I, in fact, like, work my way out of this, I, I think ultimately Bradbury can be redeemed here. Um, I think Let's All Kill Constance isn't a necessarily great book. Um, I think that its images are not powerful enough to overcome the poverty of its writing, if that makes sense. Um, but I'm willing to say that Something Wicked This Way Comes totally is a good book, and that the power of its images totally outweighs whatever paucity of writing we encounter along the way. And his early stuff, I will be reading and rereading for many generations to come. But I admit, my opinion of Bradbury has changed here. I am thinking of him less as a guiding voice, a sort of, you know, philosophical, like, uh, moderate to, you know, compare my ideas against. And now I see him as, like Lucas, maybe like G.K. Chesterton, a pure force for the creative. Um, a person who is disinterested in all of the supposed artistic uh, aspirations that so many other writers try and achieve, the sort of literary aspirations that I've talked about so much on this, you know, podcast. But just a force for letting people make up wild stuff, no matter what. No matter what people think about it, no matter how much people say it's in poor taste, no matter how it offends their delicate sensibilities, or how much they shout that we need to protect our children from this stuff, Bradbury just wants to make stuff. Just wilder and wilder ideas. Big, memorable images and icons. And that's... That I can get behind. That I can absolutely get behind. Maybe he is not, you know, on the side of the angels, if the angels are some sort of philosophical richness, some, some deep understanding of good and evil. But I tend to think the angels are on the side of creativity, even if creativity isn't always on the side of the angels, if that makes sense. Um, Bradbury, whether intentionally or unintentionally, falls into the, the right camp on that front. Maybe he's a little close to art for art's sake than I typically like, but the way he does it, it's hard to complain or criticize. So with that in mind, I kind of want to close my thoughts on Bradbury there. Like, again, Let's All Kill Constance probably has some more stuff to chase, but again, I don't think it's terribly deep or terribly worth chasing at the end of the day. Like, we've seen those themes before. We've seen, you know, Bradbury kick around the idea of, you know, good and evil, innocence and, and guilt. Um, applying that to a femme fatale just seems like begging for criticism and, and, and question. Um, and Constance does, at the end of the day, seem more trope than person. Um, a feminist critique of let's all kill Constance would not be kind, let's say. Um, but, as usual, these lectures tend to wind up with me talking about other stuff, and I want to talk about other stuff. I want to move forward. Um, because this is, in all likelihood, the last lecture I'm likely to produce this year. Like, there's a decent chance I might finish Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag and get that lecture up before, you know, 2023 hits us. Uh, but at any rate, like, this is the last of the lecture series that I definitely had planned for this semester. Um, and it's time to kind of reassess. Like, it's been a year since I started the, the Patreon account and since I started sort of taking requests from, from my patrons. Um, and in that time, there hasn't been a whole heck of a lot of growth, to be perfectly honest. Um, I've got, like, I think we went from maybe $10, $15 a month back when I started the Dostoevsky series to about twice as much. 
um, here in the end of December. Like, I think I'm making about $30 a month now, which is definitely not enough money for me to, like, seriously consider this a major part of my income or something. Uh, I definitely can't change my life to, to fit what the, the internet is asking of me or what I'm offering to the internet at this point. Um, but at the same time, it's been fun. I've liked talking about Dostoevsky. I liked researching Troy and the Trojan War and uploading all those lectures, much as it did interfere with my ethics class. Um, and I like talking about Bradbury, much as we may be ending on a bit of a bittersweet note here. Um, which means I want to continue. I, I want to keep doing this. Um, and with that in mind, I do want things to grow. I do want to be able to spend more time working on this site and this channel and this podcast. Um, so as much as, you know, I usually conclude my lectures with that little outro where I talk about the Patreon and stuff, in this one I, I really do want to just talk about it directly here. Like, not necessarily, you know, I, it's more than just please give me more money. Like, yes, I do want more money. I do want the opportunity to do more of these projects. Um, but more seriously, like, I want to keep doing this. As much as, you know, being a teacher has been really fulfilling and, and you know, lecturing and teaching students how to write and how to think is, is has been really great. It's also exhausting and doesn't afford a heck of a lot of time for me to get truly creative and, and to find new stuff to learn and to research really deeply. Um, at the end of the day, I would much rather have y'all on the internet be my taskmasters and to be able to come up with a few good ideas every, every couple of months um, and then just follow them and see where they lead me, um, rather than trying to, you know, teach the same handful of classes over and over and over again and just end up grading papers with a radically too much of my time. Um, I want to keep doing this stuff. Um, so with that in mind, first and foremost, I have, in fact, got a Patreon. Do please check that out. It's, you know, Professor Kozlowski at Patreon.com. Big surprise. Um, Google Professor Kozlowski. I'm almost certain that, like, the Anchor Spotify will be the first thing that comes up, and the Patreon will be shortly thereafter. Um, but yeah, if you can contribute, really, I would love it if you could. Um, like, even Anchor at this point has started saying, hey, have you considered doing a subscription service? And I haven't heart the heart to tell them that, like, yeah, I kind of already do that. Um, but seriously, with just a little bit more money here, I can do quite a lot of other creative stuff, and I do want to branch out and make this bigger than it already is. Um, thus far, the plan is to do roughly two readings per year. Um, so we did Dostoevsky from like January to May, and now we're, we did Bradbury here at the end of the year, September to December. Um, I've already started the voting for the next uh, re reading project. Um, I came up with five topics, namely we could be talking about the Pentateuch, um, i.e. the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. Um, we could be talking about Dostoevsky's The Idiot next semester, one of his other really great works, um, although not as well known as the Brothers Karamazov. Um, we could be talking about the ethics of fiction, an idea that is very near and dear to my heart. It give me an opportunity to talk about the philosophy underlying literature and what makes books, you know, beneficial or detrimental to society. Um, we could be talking about utopian and dystopian literature, especially in the modern period between Sir Thomas More and Immanuel Kant, a very rich time for understanding political philosophy and its development into the modern era. Or we could talk about Tolkien and the whole Middle-Earth project. Read the Silmarillion, The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, the whole package. Um, all of these are things I'm fascinated by. All of these are things that I'm eager to talk about. And all of these are topics that are broad enough that I think we could fill up an entire semester. Like, come up with a full suite of 15 or 16 lectures and talk about these this stuff really in depth. Um... And again, I'm going to do that no matter whether people join up with the Patreon or not. Like, even with the, the folks who are already subscribing, like, that's enough to keep me going as far as that goes. Uh, but if any of those topics interest you, if you want to see it done, then you got to get on the Patreon and you got to vote. Um, and only the folks who are donating get to vote, I'm afraid. So if you do want more than just to sort of ride along with whatever the community decides, I mean... 
go ahead, like, get on that Patreon and vote. The community's still really small at this point. Like, one vote one way or the other could definitely sway the tide of this thing, for sure. Um, at this point, I think, like, only three or four votes have actually been cast. So, yeah, you can definitely have a conversation with me and get a topic picked and, you know, decide what we're going to be talking about in the, the semester to come. Um, what's more, those who donate a certain amount get to name their own topic, and I do a one-off lecture for all of the $10 or more contributors every summer. Um, so if you have something that you are eager to have me talk about, eager to, to have me lecture on and research, I mean, I'd love to research it too in all likelihood. So by all means, get on there, help me out. Um, if you, you know, again, the more money that I make from the Patreon, the more time I get to spend preparing this stuff, doing research, coming up with ideas, and basically just doing what we want to do instead of just teaching the same old things over and over and over again. Um, and that's promising to me. Like, that's what I want to be doing. Um, so, yeah, like, as much as I know, you know, call to action, all that lousy advertising stuff is, is very much annoying and frustrating, there are real consequences here. Like, I am an F-list podcaster, uh, by all extent of the imagination. Like, I, I am not successful, I am not doing this for any real amount of money. Um, and, you know, I'm having fun doing it, and that's great, but... If I do, in fact, make some more money, then I can actually do more with it. I can spend more time on it. I can take fewer classes every semester and use that time doing new research, reading new books, and following up the stuff that I want to follow up with instead of the stuff that I have to. Um, so just keep that in mind. Like, I know not everybody's in a position to, to contribute. I know that a lot of my listeners are just here because, you know, it's entertaining. That's fine. Um, but if you can help, please do. Uh, I'm hoping to see more growth in 2023. Like, I'm not expecting to go viral anytime soon. Nobody who's, you know, can just sit in front of a microphone and talk for 45 minutes is likely to get viral. Um, not in comparison to how easily digestible, like, 15-second clips and stuff are. But at the same time, a little more support goes a long way in my situation. Um, you know, if I'm only making like $30, $35 a month, and that means that every dollar counts, and every 10 is huge. Um, so, yeah, think about contributing. Um, obviously, no pressure. Um, for the future, because I always do like to talk about the future and these things, um, I am taking on a much smaller course load next semester, because this semester was just friggin' nuts. Um, so I will have more time to work on whatever our reading project actually is. Um, come the summer, I hope to be able to do my usual run of one-offs. Um, thus far, I have no prospects of some big, you know, new project over the summer, but these things often take me by surprise. Um, on a personal note, my wife and I are actually talking about moving in the near future, possibly leaving New Jersey, where I'm currently based, because it is so darn expensive here, um, and finding a new place, a new state, somewhere where the property taxes aren't going to kill us, and maybe even, like, put down money for a house or something. Um, so there's a decent chance that things are going to be quite upheaved uh, over the next year or so, that, that things will be pretty dramatically changing for us and my output may be interrupted as a consequence. Um, but in the meantime, I do definitely want to keep up with the Assassin's Creed uh, discussions, the rants, uh, whenever they come up. I am almost done with Assassin's Creed Black Flag, and it is just as good as I remember, and I am so eager to talk about it because it really is like one of my all-time favorites in the franchise. Um, but on that note, I've also tracked down quite a few of the weird Assassin's Creed games uh, in recent memory, like I found Assassin's Creed Rogue on sale recently, and Assassin's Creed Chronicles, so I'm actually going to do them. Like, originally I, I said in the first lecture on Assassin's Creed that, like, you know, I, I have no, no aspirations to doing all the weird entries in the franchise, but now I'm actually likely going to do it. Um, and for that matter, I'm probably going to turn them into videos, because Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag is the last one I own on PS3. All the rest of them I own on PC, and that's way easier for me to edit uh, video for. Um, so in all likelihood, I'll be playing, recording, and uploading them to both YouTube and uh, to the Spotify uh, through Anchor, since that's apparently a thing I can do now. Um, so look for the videos to come. Like, you'll probably be able to listen to this podcast. I'm going to record them as podcasts and then just play them over the video, but... 
Um, but yeah, we have that to look forward to next year. Um, other than that, I don't know. Like, sitting here, especially at the end of the semester, it's kind of hard to plan ahead because I've got like three straight weeks of doing nothing but grading ahead of me right now. Um, but I am looking forward to it. I like having no real plan going forward. Um, I like being able to let my readers decide what the, the next reading topic is going to be. I like having the flexibility to pick up and do something new just out of the blue and, and you know, start a project that I've always wanted to do or that maybe just occurred to me to do. Um, like, I do have ideas, possible considerations, but nothing substantial yet, and I'm okay with that. Let's, you know, go ahead and, and put on our Bradbury hat for a little while, be more creative than we are thoughtful. Uh, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Um, I am hoping to get a Library of Ruina essay going soon. Like, I haven't started it yet, which that's probably a bad sign, but hopefully over the January break that'll be one of the main things that I'm concentrating on. Um, I know, like, I'm not sure anyone gives a crap about Lobotomy Corporation, Library of Ruina, and how much I've really connected with those works. Um, but you're getting the essay anyway, so, you know, I, I do want to talk about it, if only because nobody else is. Um, and I'm also thinking, especially for the patrons, those of you out there who are in fact contributing, um, I didn't do a view from my reading list this past month, and that's kind of intentional, because um, at the end of this month, at the end of the year, I, I want to do a, a recap, like a full top 10 Professor Kozlowski, you know, best of 2021 and best of you know, the, the stuff that I've been reading and, and doing this year, um, as well as possibly a, a prospective best of 2023, stuff that I'm most excited about and enthusiastic about in the future. Um, so again, if you're not contributing, maybe go ahead and do that, because there's exciting things coming, especially to the patrons in the near future. Um, but other than that, I'm just glad to have you listen, really. Like, I don't say it enough. Thank you for keeping this going, for keeping my numbers high, for making this a feasible thing that I can do, um, and for making it seem, at least to me, like I'm not quite so alone out there. Um, it's been good talking about Bradbury, about Dostoevsky, about all of this stuff, and I'm glad that you've been along for the ride, and I hope that you were glad too. Um, so... I'm going to sign off for now. Uh, again, maybe an Assassin's Creed lecture in the next couple of weeks. Probably self-contained, less rambly than this one turned out to be. Uh, maybe consider donating if you are in a position to do that. But otherwise, have a good year. Like, have a good holiday, a good new year, and let's hope that 2023 turns out to be a pretty good one. I have high hopes on this one. So... I don't know what the next thing we talk about will be, but I look forward to talking about it as soon as we get the chance. Good luck out there. No, see you soon.